This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Radio Show, which can be heard on Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row in Sydney. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. We'd like to pay our respects to Elders past and present and pay tribute to the decades-long legacy of Aboriginal fights for land rights and against the destructive mining projects that are fueling climate change. In particular, we acknowledge the Wangan and Jagalingu cultural custodians and their ongoing opposition to coal mining on their lands in central Queensland, and to the Gomorrah traditional custodians continuing opposition to coal and gas on their land in New South Wales. It is vital at this late stage in history that we all learn to care for country. It will always be Aboriginal land, and now is our time to all stand up for and protect it. Today we're going to talk about direct action. Rising Tide is a Newcastle group that I've been reporting on for years. You might remember, listeners, when I went up to hear a court case about Rising Tide members who had locked on to the Port Waratah coal loader. The magistrate listened to coal executives describe in loving detail how their operation worked and then how they'd had to get a cherry picker to lift off these young people dangling off their machinery. The magistrate in the end found that rising tide had not caused any financial loss as there were regular stoppages for maintenance and so she let them off. Ten years later the police and courts are not so understanding but rising tide has been on a tour around the country culminating in this meeting at Redfern Town Hall. It was called disruption to end the climate destruction. They plan to close down the export of coal at Newcastle for 36 hours, day and night, and they reckon it will be unpoliceable because there'll be so many people out on the water. I've been to one-day blockades before, which are like a festival with families out on kayaks and music on the beach. This will be festive too and child-friendly, but the momentum generated here will cause a social tipping point that ends fossil exports here forever. And so they hope you can add yourself to that. You can come up. You don't need to have a kayak. Just check out the Rising Tide webpage to find out what you need to do. Please take down the dates now. I will remind you every now and then that they hope Victorians will come up if they plan ahead. The dates are November 24th to 27th, and it's called the People's Blockade of the World's Biggest Coal Port. As Jenny Leong from the New South Wales Parliament says, The only solution here is that we need to build a movement outside of Parliament because we cannot believe. If thousands of people are legally paddling on the harbour, surely it will be a warning that the export of climate chaos embodied in that coal has to stop. The world will be watching as on those dates, the climate conference 
will be gathering in the United Arab Emirate, that's COP28, and you can be sure they will not be shutting down coal, oil or gas in a hurry. The first speaker is Ian Dunlop from the Breakthrough Institute and Security Leaders Climate Group. He is a respected climate activist, especially because he's an insider. He has been an oil executive with Shell and the chairman of the Australian Coal Association. He's valuable because he knows how governments and corporations fail to protect us. His talk about tipping points in the ecosystem and precautionary principles is sobering but necessary. Um, This is not an easy topic, um, but we do need to be pretty frank about the problems we're facing because time's gone by, we've achieved very little. So what I'm going to run through very quickly is what I believe is the core reality that we now face in having uh, handling climate change and what we're going to have to do over the next few years. So the first thing to look at is, well, what have we achieved in the 40 years of negotiations that have gone on in which we've been trying to address this problem? The science warned us continually of what would happen if we allowed carbon concentrations to go up and if we continued to increase our carbon emissions. So what we've um, been lucky in some ways about is that the dangers of doing that have been masked for the last 30 or 40 years by the inertia in the climate system and particularly the oceans. The oceans retain an enormous amount of energy and it gets translated into heat. And the big problem is we're getting energy coming in from the, uh, the atmosphere, from, the, from space. It's not, <coughs> it's been accumulated, it's not being reflected away. And so the oceans are warming up. And that's now reached the point where we're starting to see that coming through <coughs> to surface ocean temperatures. The other problem is that uh, as we burn fossil fuels, you push little aerosols into the atmosphere. These are the tiny particles that come from actual carbon combustion. And that forms a layer which has been actually reflecting solar radiance back into space. So it's cooled the planet below what it might otherwise have been. Now, as we're gradually big picture on climate, Um, There's a lot of talk about climate risk, there's a lot of modelling going on, uh, criticisms of the use of models and so on. But we really are facing two things, there's what's known as risk and uncertainty. The two are quite different. Risk you can quantify, you you either know from historic uh, experience or from mathematical relationships that we know work that um, how things are going to change if if carbon concentration goes up, temperature will rise in relation to it. But in climate, a lot of things are still uncertain. We have so-called tipping points, these non-linear changes that may occur, where you may get this abrupt change. Now, these are things that we don't know enough about. The first set risk is like, as Donald Rumsfeld, the former US Secretary of Defence said, the known knowns. In other words, we know they're there, we know we can quantify them, 
you put them in a computer model, you turn the handle and you get some sensible answers out. With uncertainty, these are what we might call the known, Donald calls the known unknowns. We know they're there, but we don't quite know how they're going to happen and, or how fast they're going to happen. But it's the sort of thing, if you go back and look at the history of climate change way back in millions of years ago, you can see these effects did actually occur historically. And those two things are, are really critically important. So if you look at risk, what we know now is that we're going to see a one and a half temperature increase before by, by 2030 at least. No question, uh, all the nonsense about keeping below it is frankly, as Jim Hansen, one of the world's top scientists says, hogwash. And that's gonna happen irrespective of anything we do in the meantime. Secondly, the two degree C upper limit of the Paris Agreement is probably likely prior to 2050, even with better commitments than we see in the current Paris Agreement. And if we don't do something pretty radical, we're going to see 3 degrees C after 2050 and possibly 5 degrees C um, toward 2100. That's the path we're on. We don't have to stay on that if we can get the world to wake up and start doing something. But even if we have substantial emission reductions now in the, um, in the short term, it's going to have no significant effect on warming for the next 20 or 25 years because of this aerosol, aerosol problem. This is what Jim Hansen called long ago the Faustian bargain. We put fossil fuel into the atmosphere, we know at some point we're going to have to clean it up, but we also know that's going to warm the atmosphere, so um, we have a problem. The precautionary principle of taking action now to ensure that these irreversible changes don't get locked in. So the policy implications of the idea of a target of net zero emissions by 2050 is completely inadequate. We really have to try to get to zero emissions, not net zero, but zero, as close as we can to 2030. And that's a totally different task from anything that we've been told officially. We'll just pause a minute to take that in. 2030 is very soon, but the problem is how to create a social tipping point where a large number of people accelerate the process towards zero emissions. How does the question land with you? What can you do in those seven years? The government's first priority is the security of the people. And climate change is the greatest threat to that future. Um, and that threat now is immediate. It's not years ahead. It's not 20 years away and what have you. It's right now because we're locking in those changes. So the trouble about climate inertia is that you don't see the effects of what you're doing for 10 or 20 years ahead. So if you push carbon into the atmosphere, the full effects don't come through. So in other words, we're locking stuff away now that we can't then prevent. So we must now stop matters getting worse. But apart from all of that, we've got to pull that carbon concentration down from 420 parts per million to around 350 if we can. And that may mean that we have to start looking at geoengineering in parts of the world like the Arctic of trying to refreeze it and allow uh, that temperature to be contained whilst other measures take effect because we've left it too long. So the action requires, we've got to view this as the highest priority uh, anywhere in society. It's not just one item on the political agenda, 
It's basically an existential threat to humanity. And those are the sorts of things I mentioned before that we have to do. Um, particularly the question of mobilisation, as you do in wartime, this has to be seen as the biggest threat we face. And every resource we need to address it needs to be focused on doing that. Um, and that includes not expanding fossil fuels. You can't get rid of them straight away, but you've got to stop expanding them. The other side of the coin is we actually have the technology and the solutions to do it, but we need a far greater, faster focus on implementing those. So I'll just quickly touch on the sort of things that mobilisation implies, um, some of which I've covered already, but it's got to be a total systemic change to society. Uh, it's not just you know, fiddling around the edge of the status quo and pretending you can compete existing uh, economic systems or business continuing. But the most important thing of all is we now need mass community pressure to force leaders to accept this sort of action because we're not seeing it, we're not seeing anywhere near enough uh, preparedness to face reality and we don't need nuclear submarines and greater conflict around the world. What we have to have to solve this is the maximum amount of global cooperation between the US, between China, ourselves, Russia, whoever, because this is a common problem to humanity. Every nation is exactly the same issue and you can see it pretty much everywhere in the world you're looking today. And timing is an issue. This is just a quote from Sir David King who um, we do a lot of work with in a seminar in 2021. He said, look, we've got what, what we do in the next three to five years is going to determine the future of humanity. Not in the sense of actually having implemented everything, but in the sense of having committed seriously to take the sort of action I just described. So that's the time frame. So it's completely different from anything that is being talked about in politics today, either here or around the world. And the community is now going to have to exert maximum pressure to change this thinking. Let's have a moment of reflection. Maybe you can sit in silence and take a few deep breaths and just sort of let what Ian has told us sink in for a second. And even subtropical rainforests that don't usually burn, we're actually on fire. We have the obligation to care for country. So much forest burnt that around 3 billion animals are either killed or displaced. The more we push back against the colonial apparatus, the more positive change we can have in terms of addressing climate change. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. Here is Reverend Alamoni Taumopeo from the Uniting Churches Mission and Education Unit. His homeland of Tonga is deeply affected by climate catastrophe. He looked imposing with a woven mat around his chest and a proud heritage woven into his stories. My theme for this evening, Climate Action as Christian, a prophetic role. My name is... Reverend Ali Moni Taumoi Piao. Call me Moni. My surname is very unique to me. It is both a story of honor and a challenging curse 
of our time. Tamoipao has three words in it. Tao means fight. With is a prefix, means with. Moi means uh, is prefix with. And Piao is meaning ways. So my name is Tamoi Piao, fight with ways. It was given to my family by the first king of Tonga. After the king and my ancestors went canoeing, maybe as a joyride, or testing my ancestors' ability at sea as a seafarer. In honor of him bringing the king safe to shore, he was named Tao Moi Piao, fight with waves. When Sean asked me to speak at Rising Tide Conference, I asked myself, why me? And I thought, maybe he thinks I can fight for the rising sea. Thanks, Sons, for inviting me in that sense. While I treasure my sermon, I am extremely hurt by the fact that rising sea is drowning many of my neighboring islands in the Pacific, including my own, Tom. Dr. Catherine McInnes, the group leader for Cosiro Climate Extreme and Projection Group, suggests that sea level rose about 1.8 millimeters per year over the 20th century. In the last 30 years alone, the rate of the rise has increased to about 3.6 millimeters per year. And if Neville Peake in his book, the invading sea is right saying the sea level is rising more in the South Pacific than any other region in the world. Then we are facing the most inhumane natural disaster human history ever confronted with. I still vividly remember when we were young, we used to swim by swinging from trees beside the sea into the water. 40, 50 years later, these trees are way out in the ocean front. The sea level rise comes as far as destroying roads and homes and livelihoods. Tonga has been experiencing an increasing risk and severity of coastal flooding due to the rise in sea levels. The country, like many other small island nations, is particularly vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. Rising sea level has led to more frequent and intense storm surges, which has resulted in coastal flooding and erosion. These events have created severe consequences for the coastal communities, infrastructure and ecosystems. Many Christians like me consider environmental stewardship and caring for God's creation as an important aspect of our faith. 
I believe we have a responsibility to protect the planet and address climate change as it impacts the well-being of both current and future generations. In the Uniting Church in Australia, we actively advocate for climate action, viewing it as part of our mission to promote justice, love, and compassion for all God's creations. When it comes to, to climate action, there are several myths that have emerged over the years, and I wish just to mention them. Climate change is a natural occurrence, they say. Individual actions don't matter, they claim. Renewable energy is too expensive, they advocate for. Climate action will hurt the economy. They protested for it. Climate change is a distant problem, as they said. It's important to be aware of these myths and understand the scientific consensus around climate change to make informed decisions and take effective actions towards a sustainable future for all. I wish to suggest advocating for climate action and emphasizing the responsibility for, to protect the planet can be done. Thanks to Rising Tide, Climate Action Network Australia, New South Wales Community Alliance and others for raising awareness engaging in dialogues, leading by examples, supporting climate innovative, innovative policies, even empowering our young people. If only we can be reminded, making progress on climate change requires collective efforts. And it can be done through our stand in solidarity with each other. For this task is as big as the problem in front of us. In his book, The Rising Tide, Among the Islands and Adults of the Pacific Ocean, Tom Bamforth told a story shared by Mrs. Muffy Hoare. She was the bank staff in the island of Niwa Toputapu. I found out that Muffy was a best friend of my wife, who is here tonight. And she married a cousin of mine. Small world that is, isn't it? The story was about the tsunami that hit Samoa in 2009. It kept going until it also hit the island of Niwa Toputapu, north of Tonga. Muffy shared, and I quote her, I was at home with my family preparing breakfast when I heard people shouting across the road, the sea is coming! As soon as I got out, I can see water everywhere and realized this was from the first wave. Animals were running around as if they were gone mad. And I can see the second wave coming followed by a third, 
that is over the coconut tree, 20, 20 meters. People thought that everyone would die. In fact, 11 of them died. They were relatives of my mom. Imagine what would happen if your own parents who was being buried on the side of the sea will be sucked in to the ocean and you see them no more. It can be so emotionally distressing for people like Thomas because we respect both dead and alive. The rising tide is direct result of climate change curses both the living and the dead. Will you stand with us fighting against the tide? song is Ta Utama, which means my child. We ask a question to ourselves. What are we going to tell our children if we fail to protect our planet?
Jenny Leung is in the New South Wales Parliament. She represents the Greens and she's the member for Newtown in the New South Wales Parliament. For Melbourne listeners, Newtown's a bit like Fitzroy or Carlton, very vibrant. Jenny has been a climate campaigner for years, doing all the hard work. But now she's in Parliament, she has come to a conclusion. The only solution here is that we need to build a movement outside of Parliament. I've never heard any politician really say that, except maybe Christine Milne. But Jenny said it, and it was a huge round of applause for her. It went on for ages. And I've had to delete the many waves of applause for all the speakers. But this really was a rousing meeting. Thank you so much, Fahima, and thank you all for turning out tonight at Redfern Town Hall. I'd like to join with others in acknowledging that we are here on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and to pay our respects to Elders past and present, recognising that it always was and always will be First Nations land and particularly recognising that we have an ongoing commitment in our struggle for climate justice to ensure that there is no environmental justice or climate justice without racial justice and to follow the lead of First Nations people who have been the custodians and remain the true leaders of this country and a recognition that we have to do so much more to support their struggle for self-determination, sovereignty and treaties. Can I just say that it's wonderful to follow on after Ian and um, Reverend Tamoe Peo. Thank you so much for giving us an insight into the real impact of climate change on your communities, but also knowing full well that those impacts extend beyond just your homeland of Tonga to the ongoing challenges that our communities share collectively in the heart of Sydney where the impacts of urban heat and the failure to deal with the ongoing realities of climate change here in our cities is something that is continued. And I, in that vein, I want to also acknowledge the Lord Mayor, Clover Moore, who's here with us this evening and say that we offer, I think, a huge amount of strength and solidarity from the heart of the Newtown electorate to the incredible activists of the rising tide blockade in Newcastle and I, like Adam Bant, pledged in Melbourne, hope to make it there to Newcastle and bring a contingent of Newtown folks with me to make sure that we can be doing all that we can to blockade what is the world's largest coal port. And it's very clear to everybody in this room and we've heard from what Ian has said that the devastation impacts of climate change are real. It's here and we have just experienced in Australia the hottest winter on record and now we're being warned that we'll face an even more catastrophic summer ahead. Right now, bushfires are raging in both the northern and southern hemispheres. We know that there are serious questions about the safety and care for people that are living in bushfire, flood impacted, and extreme weather zones, not just here in Australia, but around the world. We know that there are still people living in tents in Lismore as a result of the floods, and we know that there are still people living in fire-impacted homes in the south coast as a result of those fires. We know that the intersection between climate justice and the need to keep coal and gas in the ground and the failures of corporate and capitalist interests to advance an agenda which sees their profits put over and above the well-being and the health and the dignity and the right to shelter and clean air and clean water and a clean environment have for too long 
been aligned with the political forces that exist in this country and around the globe. We know that we have the potential right now to be doing so much more, and yet that's not what we're seeing. We have the technical capabilities to address the challenges. The solutions are there. But instead, we see a political, what? What is the word that you even describe it? Because usually I would stand up here and I would say a disappointing political situation. <laughs> I think it's pretty clear that we've moved beyond the disappointing. We have moved to a point of outrage. The fact that we have Labor governments at a federal level and state wall to wall in states on the mainland and we are still seeing new coal and gas projects in the order of 116 new coal and gas projects nationally due to begin operation by 2030 is just an unacceptable reality. It goes beyond disappointing. And I don't think anyone in this room needs to be convinced of that. I mean, I'm guessing if I ask you all to put you up your hand, are you convinced we should probably keep coal and gas in the ground? Rise your hand. I think it's pretty clear we need to keep coal and gas in the ground. And yet today in New South Wales, we have discussion about the fact that a $3 billion subsidy will be done and delivered to keep a roaring coal-fired power station open and running in New South Wales under a Labor government, under an energy and climate minister that calls herself part of the left. Now, if we can't get climate action from our political leaders, when the guy who fights Tories and thinks that he stands for climate and environment and left progressive politics is the Prime Minister, and we have people in the New South Wales Labor government that are delivering massive billions of dollar subsidies to potentially open coal and gas plants, when we're sitting here right now in the federal seat of Sydney where the Environment Minister has approved, and I'm talking six brand new coal mines, one approved just last week, Lake Vermont coal mine approved on the 6th of January, Isaac River coal mine approved on the 11th of May, Star coal mine approved on the 23rd of June, Ensham coal mine approved on the 3rd of July, and Gregory Quinnam coal mine approved on the 31st of August. If we cannot get that kind of action in our parliaments, then there is only one solution. And rising tide, and the incredible activists, <laughs> I, I, I didn't hear the heckle, but I'm sure I would have agreed with it, so go for it. But it, the only solution here is that we need to build a movement outside of Parliament, because we cannot believe, we cannot believe that there is any decision that is going to be made in our federal parliaments or our state parliaments that is going to solve this crisis. It is sitting on us, the crisis is real, and we have an obligation to mobilise and get active. But we cannot, for a second, believe that there are not going to be massive challenges ahead in mobilising in that way. We know, and we've heard, that Pacific Island nations are bracing the impact of the dangers and the impact on their communities. We are hearing the stories, as we just did tonight, about the impact in the communities of the Torres Strait, the Zenadikes. We have heard the digging up and retrieval of buried remains of loved ones because the oceans are rising to such massive levels. We know that the impact here is huge, but we know that those Pacific communities, those communities in those areas are rising up like never before and are speaking out with all of their power and all of their force and all of their determination for change. And we owe it to them to stand with them. But we also know that nonviolent direct action, 
Civil disobedience is what we have to do when the bad laws and the bad policymakers and the appallingly disgraceful decisions of supposed politicians that are supposed to be protecting our environment are making decisions that are going to destine ourselves and future generations and the environment and the species and the planet to a complete destruction, that there's only one solution. And that solution is we have to mobilise and we have to get active. That solution is we need to make a commitment here and now tonight to engage in non-violent direct action to be able to disrupt the system. The system that is seeking to profit out of this devastation. But we know in New South Wales that that is a huge risk. We know that there have been significant increases to police powers. We know that we saw in the last term of the New South Wales Liberal government that Labor and Liberal paired up together to introduce really strict anti-protest laws to try and shut down the rights of protesters. We know, and I sat in that parliament while they talked of the inconvenience of someone blocking the Sydney Harbour Bridge, of how poor people were trying to get to work and earn a decent living, and the impact that would have on our economy, on our society. Are they not hearing the stories? Are they not looking at the impact of the floods on the people of Lismore? Are they not looking at the impact of the wildfires on communities here and around the world? Are they not seeing and hearing the stories that we hear from the Pacific, from the Torres Strait, about the rising tides? And are they not witnessing the extinction that is going on? There's one solution here, and that solution is that we all need to make sure that we're committed to turning up and turning out. But we also need to make it really clear to everyone that the time for polite decisions and activism is gone. The time for disruption, for civil disobedience and for breaking the bad laws that continue to destroy our environment is the only way forward right now. And that is why I hope, although my kayak skills are very bad, <laughs> I hope that I'll be joining Adam Bant and a massive, massive, massive blockade from around the country as part of the massive rising tide blockade, the People's Blockade. Thank you all, especially to the people of Newcastle. Join me, Aya Kwai, with Ubuntu Voices, Wednesday at 8.30pm on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word, meaning I am here because you are. Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African-Australian make to our communities in music, academia, the arts, and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. Ubuntu Voices every Wednesday at 8:30 p.m. None of us are free. One of us is chained. None of us are free. Clover Moore has been the Lord Mayor of Sydney for 19 years, and before that, she was an independent in the New South Wales Parliament. She's been on the side of climate action for many years. She was there when the City of Sydney endorsed the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty in 2021. You might not have heard much about that treaty yet, but it's gaining momentum worldwide. She called on our federal and state governments to immediately end 
new coal, oil and gas projects, federal and state, and to phase out current fossil fuel production in an equitable manner. There's a, a global group of city mayors who are committed to a speedy reduction of emissions, and Clovermore represents us there. Of course, she's a controversial figure in Sydney, but she's talking here to a Redfern town hall packed with people prepared to blockade the coal port of Newcastle, while world leaders meet at COP28. She highlights the necessity of non-violent protest and the outrage of anti-protest laws in New South Wales. It was a devastating day for democracy when on the 2nd of December last year, climate protester Diana Violet Coco, uh, after blocking the one lane of Sydney Harbour Bridge in support of climate action, was arrested and jailed under the state's tough crime laws. Thankfully, Diana's conviction was quashed on appeal, but she still had to serve 13 days in prison. The New South Wales Crimes Act should not limit protest or be used to intimidate people who dare to speak up for justice and the environment. Traffic disruption, especially on the Harbour Bridge, as Jenny pointed out, can be very inconvenient. We heard about that from the Minister. But let's put this in context. Deanna was demonstrating because the planet is on fire. In July, we experienced the world's hottest month on record. And the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, announced the era of global warming has ended and the era of global boiling has arrived. At least 115 people in Hawaii died, hundreds are missing in the worst fires in US history, Canada also had its worst wildfire season, a state of emergency was declared across Russia's Siberian provinces from wildfires, North Africa burned, the Mediterranean islands of Greece and Italy were devastated by fires. And here in Australia, heading into summer, we have been warned. Today, a catastrophic fire danger was forecast for parts of southern Queensland. We have experienced extreme heat, wildfires, floods, fish kills, bleaching coral reefs and ice melts that demonstrate the climate is changing at a faster rate than most scientists predicted. And global tipping points are closer than we thought. Climate change is an existential threat and the most serious, a serious issue of our time. And the criminalisation of those who protest against governments and corporations that are failing to take the threat seriously is shameful. In a democracy, all people, especially young people, should have the right to protest without being arrested, as they will have to live with the consequences of the failure of state and federal governments to take action here in Australia on accelerating global warming. For nearly two decades, governments denied climate change, promoted a reliance on fossil fuels, turned their back on global collaborations and set shamefully low emissions reduction targets. We, we now have a new federal government with, a better, with better environmental credentials. But as Jenny's pointed out, it is still approving new or expanded coal mines and gas fields, increasing fossil fuel subsidies and exporting fossil fuels. And we have a state government that won't rule out the support of the Narrabi gas project. New coal-fired power stations or extending the life of the dinosaur coal plants, like Origin Energy's Araring plant at Lake Macquarie, undermines actions to reduce emissions. 
As well, the reported $3 billion cost of keeping this plant afloat is obscene. It's the opposite of what governments must do to ensure our transition to renewables and a clean energy future. Climate change is here and it's terrifying, but solutions are not beyond us, as Ian said too. I went to Canberra and I lobbied successive Prime Ministers, I've been mayor since 2004, you can think of the Prime Ministers I've met, uh, and advocated successful premiers, ditto, um, to, take, to also take action on accelerating global warming. We were the first major city in Australia to declare a climate emergency, and we lead many other governments with ambitious targets and policies, advocacy and international partnerships. We're now committed to net zero emissions across our local government area by 2035, which we brought forward from 2040. The New South Wales government's target is 50% by 2030. I'm advocating for a statewide ban on gas connections in new homes, as there has been in Victoria. And in the meantime, we're looking at other ways we can electrify new homes and reduce gas connections in the city. And we're advocating for the introduction of minimum energy performance standards for existing rental properties which is also an issue of equity. While the world's experts are imploring nations to decarbonise economies, our governments are shockingly approving new and expanded coal mines. The International Energy Agency, the world's leading energy organisation, has declared there is no room for any fossil fuel development if the world is to reach net zero by 2050. While governments continue su supporting fossil fuel industries, people will continue to protest. We've seen around the world the passion and the intelligence of younger generations challenging governments to tackle our climate emergency. Protest is an integral part of our democracy and history has shown that protests work. Fires around the world are burning our planet and they're absolutely linked to climate change and climate change is absolutely about burning fossil fuels. We need to act with the urgency that this moment demands and you're all here and doing this and thank you and congratulations to you. If not, people are going to continue to advocate, as you are doing, through peaceful protest and non-violent civil disobedience. And I want to conclude by saying I support peaceful civil disobedience, protests and the people's blockade in the world's largest coal port. Alexa is a 19-year-old activist from Rising Tide. Um, in high school, she was a central leader in the school strike for climate movement in Newcastle and she was awarded Newcastle Young Citizen of the Year 2020 for that work. We're so lucky to be here. Me and three other Rising Tides folks have just been travelling around the country and this is our last stop. Um, and man, does it feel amazing. It feels like a bit of a home crowd audience because I know there's some people from Newcastle. Can you give us a cheer? I'm just feeling like there's so much momentum and energy from the, this, this tour that we've been going on for the last couple of weeks. People are ready for this action. People are ready to do more. And I wanted to start tonight by telling a bit about my story and my first experience of activism, which was in the first school strike for climate back in Newcastle. Who here has been to one of those school strikes for climate? Yeah, I thought so. They were, they were pretty epic. And I vividly remember that day. There were a few hundred of us kids in our school uniforms marching down the street, our fists in the air, chanting. And I remember how empowering that was. 
But even more so, when I look back on that day, what I remember it is I remember it as the day when something inside of me was unlocked and when a fire in my belly was lit. But even more so, what I just could not wrap my head around was that people knew about this, right? Wasn't as if I just discovered some top secret confidential, confidential information. I'd just done a quick Google search. So people had known about this for decades. So what I just could not understand was why parents weren't out stocking coal trains in a desperate attempt to salvage their kids' futures. Or why my parents weren't pounding on the doors of politicians demanding that they do something. And it was really hard and there was this one particular morning when I was 15 that I remember as I walked to school feeling especially upset and crying about the climate crisis. And as I walked through those school gates, I tried to compose myself and I still vividly remember in that moment that I made a vow to myself that I would do everything in my power to fight for the future of life on this planet. And then everything that I feared the most started to happen. We all remember those bushfires in 2019. In Newcastle and in Sydney, the skies were filled with smoke for months and all around our country, people were losing their lives and their homes. We've just been to Lismore and people have still not recovered 18 months on. And we've just heard the impacts that the Pacific are seeing, the devastation. And so since I've been 15 and even before then, I've been watching these climate disasters happening, I've been watching them happen from home and have just been feeling so powerless. Because while we know that the climate crisis is here and while people all over the world are suffering, what is our government doing? What they said they were gonna do before they were elected is they said that they would end the climate wars. Anthony Albanese said that he wanted his legacy to be climate action. It's, it's laughable, it really is. Because now we're more than a year on and we know that that is just greenwash and that is just more lies from a government who is meant to protect us but is actually just in the pockets of the fossil fuel industry. The reality is that they are continuing to approve new coal and gas projects. And so now it is them that is waging this climate war. And it is the most horrific war that has ever been waged. It is a war against nature, against climate, against millions of species. It's a war against billions of people, against me, against my entire generation and all of those yet to come. As Ian Dunlop was talking about just today, one of the scariest things about the climate crisis is climate tipping points, right? Is the idea that once we hit certain thresholds, that some things will just become irreversible, that massive and irreversible changes will spiral out of our control. And it's scary because it makes it so much harder to predict and it also just means that some things are irreversible. But what gives me hope is the fact that there are social tipping points, right? That history has shown us that if we can build a large enough and a powerful enough movement, we will be able to create unstoppable energy that makes rapid, radical transformative change just inevitable. And I truly believe that if we can pull that off, we are going to see victories that cascade around Australia, if not the world. And that's why we're here. Because it's 2023 and we need transformative, rapid change. 
And to get there, we need to use the superpower, the biggest superpower that social movements have, and that's civil resistance. And we know that we can do it because it's been done before, right? The Indian independence, the suffragettes, the US civil rights movement, the campaign to save the Franklin in Australia, or in the Northern Rivers, the anti-CSG campaign. There's just no shortage of examples. So that's Rising Tide's vision, is to build a social movement, a civil resistance movement of historic proportions. Because it's 2023 and that is what we need. And that's, that's our vision and that's what we're going to do. So to build this civil resistance movement, we know that we need three things. We firstly need a, um, a achievable yet inspiring goal. Secondly, we need to do deep organising in our communities. And thirdly, we need escalatory disruption. And we have a goal, and that's to shut down the Newcastle coal port, because it is the biggest coal port in not just Australia, but in the world. The coal that is exported through that port is responsible for 1% of global emissions. That's almost as much as our entire domestic emissions. So we just need to shut it down. And I'm not talking about for a few hours, I'm not even talking about for a few days, I'm talking about forever. And then the second part of that is deep community organising. And that looks like going out into our communities, sharing our stories, sharing our fears of the climate crisis, but also sharing our hopes, and then moving people to action. And then the third part of this is escalatory disruption. And that's what Rising Tide's doing. Last April, we stopped a coal train. In November, we're going to be blockading the world's largest coal port for two full days. And it's set to be the biggest civil disobedience for climate in Australia's history. And then next year, that's when we're going to launch waves of sustained disruption of the world's largest coal port. Because if we can build a flagship battle in Newcastle that seriously disrupts the export of coal, if we can build that movement that has enough power and enough people in it, then we can ignite a national and vibrant movement that will seriously have the power to smash the social license of the fossil fuel industry. Yes. Wouldn't it be amazing if we can get to a point where we are able to engage in civil disobedience and in civil resistance and we have enough people, we have enough diversity and unity that we become both physically and politically unstoppable. Had the vast majority of the population behind us, and we will just become unpoliceable. And I'm just sick of feeling powerless. So let's get angry, let's get active, and then let's fucking win. We have a right to be in public space undertaking political activity. That is not something that people should be telling us that we can't do. Multiple actions rolling over months and years and create huge sustained pressure of social change. And what we're seeing around the country right now is increasing repression of protest. Protest works. That's why I think uh, we're seeing it criminalised all over the place. 3CR. Stay tuned. Stay radical.
been listening to the Climate Action Radio Show at 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row in Sydney. Since the Redfern Town Hall event, we've heard that Adelaide have booked one bus and they're filling a second to come up to Blockade Newcastle on 24th until the 27th of November. Brisbane is going to bring 300 people and Sydney people are only a train trip away. Rising Tide stopped a coal train back in April when 50 people were arrested. They received international media coverage because, as Alexa Stewart says, we had a really clear message, no new coal. When people see the diversity and commitment and the type of people getting involved, they are a lot more sympathetic. Meanwhile, according to Jim McElroy of Green Left Newspaper, those 50 people who stopped the coal train have been vindicated. The Newcastle magistrate said, any reasonable person would agree with the goals of their action. Some of them received a fine and some received a community correction order. So come on, Melbourne, start booking your buses or get a train ticket to join Rising Tide in Newcastle on November the 24th. Make this a national success like the battle to save the Franklin River. Thanks tonight to Rising Tide and the joyful MC Fahima Badrul-Hisham. Thanks to Ian Dunlop, Reverend Moni Taumopeo, Jenny Leong, Clover Moore and Alexa Stewart. Sean Murray from Rising Tide invites you, all of you, to prepare to come to Newcastle from November the 24th to November the 27th or even just come up for a day. 2030 is very soon. But the problem is how to create a social tipping point where a large number of people accelerate the process towards zero emissions. How does the question land with you? What can you do in those seven years? My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show.
It is a story for the whole world. Twenty thirty is very soon. What can you do in those seven years?